You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Your Brain on Facts, the book. Two-thirds of the content of the book are topics that have never been and will never be on the show. Pre-order now at yourbrainonfacts.com slash book. And by our amazing patrons at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. I sincerely appreciate you continuing your financial support in this difficult time. In the village of Giddesham, Devon, England, in the 18th century, lived a woman named Joanna Southcott. Southcott became convinced that she had supernatural powers and began selling seals of the Lord, essentially tickets to get into heaven, which people bought. She declared that she was the woman of the apocalypse, as foretold in the Bible, and that she would give birth to the new Messiah on October 19, 1841 despite the fact that she was 64 years old. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. We're living through a more uncertain than usual time right now. I wouldn't say it's the end of the world, but others might, and have. History is rife with people who claim to have been told or to have worked out when the end of days is coming. The list on Wikipedia is 24 page downs, And that's really only focusing on Judeo-Christian prophecies. Everyone from peasant girls to monks to the mathematician who popularized the use of the decimal point had a theory. Cotton Mather, the influential Puritan minister who played a decisive role in the Salem witch trials, proclaimed in 1691 that doomsday would occur in 1697, basing the date on events that were current to him that he interpreted as fulfillments of biblical prophecy. When 1697 passed uneventfully, Mather changed his forecast, first to 1706, then 1716, and finally 1717. Mather didn't make any more predictions between 1717 and his death in 1728, but he was still certain that the end was near. Jonas Wendell, along with other Adventist preachers, predicted the second coming of Christ would occur between 1873 and 1874. After the prediction didn't bear out, Nelson Bardour, a follower of Wendell, reinterpreted the prediction to mean that Jesus had returned in 1874, but he was invisible. That does make it harder to disprove, I'll grant you. Then there was Mother Shipton, the Witch of York, a fascinating blend of historical figure and embellished character. Born Ursula Southiel during a thunderstorm in a cave in 1488 to a teenage mother who refused to name the father, Mother Shipton looked every bit like the iconic witch. Woody skin, hunched posture, hooked nose, the works. She made a number of predictions, all of them in verse, like Shakespeare's weird sisters in Macbeth. She is said to have predicted Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries, the Great Fire of London, the reign of Elizabeth I, and even possibly the invention of airplanes and the telephone. But the first written version of her predictions didn't come out until 80 years after her death, and some of the authors have admitted to adding to what she supposedly said. So we're not 100% certain if Mother Shipton really said, The world to an end shall come in 1881 but we can be fairly certain that it didn't. 
The cave in which she was born is now a tourist attraction, along with the nearby petrifying well. Items placed in the well are said to turn to stone, and that's more of a loose interpretation than an outright fable. The water in the well has a very high mineral content, and those minerals will attach themselves to anything in the water, making it look like the object is turning to stone. Bonus fact, the witches in Macbeth are referred to usually as the Weird Sisters, but were originally called the Wayward Sisters, meaning good women who'd lost their way and been seduced by the allure of magic. Doomsday predictions could come from the highest offices in the land, but that didn't make them any more true. Pope Sylvester II became Pope in 999 CE. With the auspicious-sounding date of the year 1000 looming, Sylvester and a number of other Christian leaders foretold the coming of Jesus at the turn of the millennium, and many people believed it. Like, really believed. There were riots in the streets, thousands of Christians fled to the holy city of Jerusalem, and many attended what was expected to be a particularly interesting midnight mass at St. Peter's Basilica on New Year's Eve. When the morning of January 1st dawned and it was clear the world had not ended, Sylvester and the other Christian leaders revised their predictions. Have you picked up on that trend yet? If Judgment Day hadn't kicked off on the anniversary of Jesus' birth, it must do on the anniversary of his death. So Sylvester II declared the world would end in 1033, but he was already 54 years old, and sure enough, didn't have to hear any gainsaying when the apocalypse didn't come the second time because he'd been dead for 30 years. A century later, Pope Innocent III had a less obvious and markedly less nice reason for his end-time prophecy. Innocent blamed the Muslims. Christians and Muslims have had kind of a sordid past, and Innocent viewed Muslims as agents of Satan. To his mind, the apocalypse would occur 666 years after the founding of Islam, which would put it in the year 1284. He, too, died well before he could see how wrong he was. Predicting the end of the world requires perseverance. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. You've got to stick with it, like the founder of the Worldwide Church of God, Herbert Armstrong. Along with his sons, Richard and Garner, Armstrong picked up quite a following even before claiming that the world would end in 1936 and only members of his church would be saved. The Great Depression and the Dust Bowl probably made it easy for people to believe that our collective ticket was about to get punched. Armstrong then turned his sights to 1943, where the second war to end all wars lent credence to his doomsday claims. When life settled into the post-war normal, Armstrong amended his prediction to 1972, a significant margin of error. People sold all of their possessions to pay for travel to Petra in Jordan, which most of us know as the resting place of the Holy Grail from the third and final Indiana Jones movie, where they would be safe from World War III, which Armstrong said would be all of Europe led by Germany against the US and the UK. World War III did not in fact begin in 1972 or the next amended date of 1975. In December 1954, a Chicago Tribune headline read, Doctor warns of disasters in world Tuesday, worst to come in 1955, he declares. The doctor was just passing along the predictions made by Dorothy Martin, a 54-year-old housewife from Oak Park, Illinois. 
Martin believed that aliens from the planet Clarion had beamed messages into her brain, informing her that a massive flood would soon destroy the planet. Her prophecies attracted a small group of followers, including the Doctor, who called themselves Seekers. Many of the Seekers quit their jobs, sold their belongings, and removed any metal from their bodies, which Martin said would be essential for boarding the alien ship that would take them away. They gathered at Martin's home on Christmas Eve 1955, singing carols while they waited to be beamed to safety. This wasn't the first time the group had gathered for their exodus. The aliens were supposed to come on December 17th, but didn't. Then the 18th, 21st, and finally the 24th. As the night of Christmas Eve wore on, Martin's followers became understandably impatient. Finally, at 4.45 in the morning on Christmas Day, Martin announced that God had been so impressed by their actions, he was no longer going to destroy the Earth. Nice recovery. Though Martin had few followers, their experience has left a lasting legacy. The group had been infiltrated, if you will, by a small group of psychologists and students from the University of Minnesota, led by social psychologist Leon Festinger. Festinger wrote about the whole experience in When Prophecies Fail, a social and psychological study of a modern group that predicted the destruction of the world. Kind of a lengthy title, but we'll go with it. It was in this book that he began to explore something you've probably heard of, cognitive dissonance. That's when two disparate ideas exist in your head at the same time, and you feel uncomfortable until you can find a way to make them fit somehow. Festinger observed cognitive dissonance in the seekers who had to repeatedly convince themselves that Martin was right, even after seeing, with their own eyes, that she wasn't. Speaking of being right, how did you do on week one of the Your Brain on Facts trivia contest? Some people struggled, but some people did really well, and five of the top scorers will get the full unlocked version of Scategories Blitz, donated by the creators of the app. Look for week two to be posted Friday morning running to Monday morning. I'm not certain what the prize will be for next week, but I guarantee it'll be something fun. Speaking of fun, we had a really good time this week over at facebook.com slash groups slash Brainiac Breakroom, working on some interesting puzzles together. And remember, there is never any cost or obligation to join that group. We also had a great time for community with last week's Mystery Monday. The clues had been spam, a woman drawing a line up the back of another woman's legs, and flower sacks. And the topic was people making do through the Great Depression and World War II. Well, Maria guessed it exactly right, but she's won before. So she said to give her stickers to the person who was next closest, and that was Mackenzie. But Mackenzie's won before too, so she said let it ride, give it to the person who was next closest in guessing. So stickers will eventually make their way across the pond to our buddy Richard Enriquez. When, you know, going to the post office is safe again. The early part of the 19th century was the golden age of doomsday prophets. Seriously, every time you turned around, there was another preacher with a set date for the millennium. Millennium in this context meaning 1,000 years after Jesus returns to Earth, not 1,000 years by the calendar. Presbyterian preacher Christopher Love thought an earthquake was going to wipe out most people in 1805. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, thought it would happen in 1836. 
George Rapp, founder of the Harmony Society, insisted Jesus would be back during his lifetime, even while he lay dying. A standout in the crowd, though, was Harriet Livermore. Livermore was the daughter of a U.S. congressman, and she was a popular preacher, particularly for a woman. She toured first New England and then much of the rest of the country. Her tour included speaking in front of the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., not once, not twice, but four times. Her sermons were pretty standard Protestant fare until around 1831, when Livermore read a published letter by Jew-turned-Christian Joseph Wolfe, who wrote that the Lord would stand upon the Mount of Olives in A.D. 1847. Livermore was so taken with Wolfe's letter that she had 2,000 copies printed. Wolfe was probably also the source of Livermore's more out-there belief. She insisted that Native Americans were the lost tribes of Israel and that she should be the one to Christianize them. The government was less keen on her one-woman crusade, even before she went to Congress to petition them to return the Native Americans to Jerusalem. Her beliefs became increasingly bizarre, and she found herself pushed out from even the most fringe movements. When you're too weird for people who think the world is ending next month, you know you're pretty weird. The most bizarre story is one where the people believed, but the prophet didn't. Presenting the Prophet Hen of Leeds. Yes, I said hen, as in a chicken of the female persuasion. This chicken was hatched in Leeds, in the southern part of the north of England, and in 1806, the people there were sure that the end was nigh. The chicken had started laying eggs, etched with the message, Christ is coming, on them. It was misspelled, missing the H in Christ, but they didn't let themselves get bogged down in the details. The hen belonged to a local woman named Mary Bateman. Bateman began life as a serving girl, before deciding to supplement her income with a bit of petty theft, being caught and sacked. She then set up shop as a teller of fortunes and seller of potions, charms, and curatives. Bateman was good at what she did, or at least good at convincing people she was good at what she did, and she grew to have some acclaim. She still wasn't above a petty con, though, once going around town soliciting donations for a family that had been burned out of their house but keeping the money for herself. With a reputation like that, you'd think people would have been suspicious of an apparent miracle happening in her vicinity, but they don't appear to have been. So how was she doing it? How was Bateman getting a chicken to lay eggs with apocalyptic messages? Bateman was taking the regular old eggs and writing on them with concentrated vinegar. Vinegar is acetic acid, and eggshells are made of calcium carbonate. The vinegar dissolves the calcium carbonate into calcium acetate, which can be easily rinsed away. Do you remember when your science teacher in middle school left an egg in vinegar and the shell disappeared? Same principle. Bateman then, and this is the cherry on top of the crazy sundae, put the egg back in the chicken. I'm going to repeat that for those who zoned out for a quick second. Bateman reinserted the egg into the chicken. That way, people could witness the egg being laid to bolster the credibility of the claims. But one man from town eventually figured out what she was doing, and Bateman was hanged. Not for the egg thing. There were no laws on the books about making false doomsday prophecies. That same year, a woman named Rebecca Perigo and her husband William 
hired Bateman to lift a curse from Rebecca. Bateman then began secretly poisoning the couple, possibly so she could then miraculously cure them, but Rebecca died and William caught wise and went to the police. After her conviction, Bateman claimed she was pregnant to stay her execution, but a dozen matrons were charged with examining her and declared that she was lying. Who could have guessed? Bateman was hanged in 1809 and earned the nickname the Yorkshire Witch, a name both unfair and not even unique, since it sounds so much like Ursula Southfield's sobriquet, the Witch of York. At least the chicken had better branding for what she'd been through, going down in history as the Prophet Hen of Leeds. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. One of the 19th century doomsday prophets actually left a lasting impression through something called the Great Disappointment. If you're going to be disappointed, you might as well be disappointed greatly. The doomsayer in this round was one William Miller and his followers, the Millerites. Born to a Baptist family in 1782, Miller lived a normal, farmy life until 1816 when he became obsessed with the afterlife, possibly from having served during the War of 1812. He spent the next 15 years searching his Bible for an answer, though he wasn't so myopic that he missed the various millennial movements that were springing up around the country. Whether it was from anxiety over the worsening economic climate, the Panic of 1837 had led to a terrible recession, political uncertainty, the tension that would lead to the Civil War was already in full effect, or lingering anxiety from New England's dark day, a day that went pitch black at noon, and no, it wasn't a solar eclipse. But people were really open to the idea of the world ending, and numerous religious figures stepped up with prophecies. Miller believed Jesus would come and everything would be pretty keen for the believers. For the rest of us, though, the earth would be, quote, cleansed by fire, the elements will melt with fervent heat, and the bodies of the wicked will be burned to ashes, and their spirits would be banished from the earth, shut up in the pit. So that'll be fun. Along with Isaac Newton and a host of other scholars, Miller examined apocalyptic works such as the Book of Daniel and Book of Revelations to calculate when the Second Coming would occur. 
working from Daniel 8.14, until 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, Miller determined that the second coming would occur on March 23, 1843. He kept that information close to the vest, not to prevent a panic, but because he expected to be publicly ridiculed. It might have stayed within his first sphere of influence if not for one Joshua Vaughn Himes. Himes, a Boston minister and zealous evangelist, invited Miller to give a sermon in 1839, which led to numerous other invitations from other ministers. Not only did this lead to Miller's message being heard by thousands of people, but other ministers, including Himes, began preaching the warning of imminent judgment. Not everyone was on board, though. Newspapers began reporting on Miller's appearances, blaming Miller for cases of insanity or suicide that they claimed to have happened. Miller's membership got a boost when an extremely bright comet appeared in the sky in 1843 and scared the crap out of people though Miller didn't explicitly tie the comet to his message. After another going over of his math, Miller and his followers moved the date of the second coming to April 23, 1843. As the date approached, the crowds got bigger and the detractors got louder, worried that people would stop working if they thought the world was going to end, thus bringing the economy to a halt. April 23rd came and went. Miller went back to the Bible and started recalculating, concluding that he had made a mistake by relying on solar years instead of lunar years. Sure, that was the problem. He recalculated that it would be spring of the next year instead. More people became Millerites as that year passed. Spring came and went as usual. Undaunted, Miller insisted that the second coming would happen that fall. One Millerite, S.S. Snow, opined that it would be October 22nd, since that would fall on Yom Kippur. Miller had his doubts, but allowed his followers to convince him. After two failed predictions, some members had left, many of the ministers who'd supported Miller were suddenly silent, and even the newspapers weren't really bothering anymore. October 22nd turned into October 23rd, and that was all she wrote for the Millerites. A few diehards tried to explain away the conspicuous lack of apocalypse, but the rest suffered the great disappointment. Miller and Himes turned their attention to raising money for Millerites who had impoverished themselves by quitting their jobs and giving away their possessions because somebody had told them that those things wouldn't matter. The Millerite movement limped along for a while under Joshua Himes. He and his son established the Adventist movement before he gave up and went back to being Episcopalian. He left behind not only Advent Christians, but also the Seventh-day Adventists, who are certainly still out there today. They have to be. Somebody's buying all that postum. Adventists hadn't learned their lesson about doomsday predictions, though. Jonathan Cummings predicted Christ would return in 1854, and William Thurman predicted it would happen in 1875. But fewer people were listening this time. Speaking of listening, if you would like something to listen to during your very important hand-washing sessions, because if you sing Happy Birthday one more time, you might legitimately snap, check out the fascinating new podcast series, Listen, Rinse, Repeat. They are 20-second comedies, dramas, or factoids from yours truly to keep your mind occupied while it times you out for proper hand-washing. 
Try asking your smart speaker to play the latest listen, rinse, repeat. That way you don't even have to touch your phone with your newly clean hands. Speaking of good things to do, until April 17th, Podchaser, IMDB of podcasts, is going to donate 25 cents to Meals on Wheels COVID-19 Response Fund for every podcast or episode review that is left on podchaser.com. And they'll add another 25 cents every time the podcaster replies to the review, which you know I will do. So head on over to podchaser.com this week to review your favorite shows. And you might even find yourself with a new favorite show, this one. Are you into the secret histories of exorcisms, Christmas massacres, killdozers, and concert disasters? How about haunted mansions, the Philadelphia Experiment, the Dorm of Death, or candy corn? Then you're going to love Ghost Town, a hilarious and sometimes not so hilarious twice-weekly podcast. On Wednesdays, we discuss the secret history of an abandoned, unexplored, haunted, or mysterious place from anywhere in the world. And on Fridays, we cover an amazing historical failure from any time in history. Ghost Town is 100% safe and legal. We guarantee it. It's also fun, spooky, and can contain a riot, a massacre, a murder, or an arch deluxe. I'm Rebecca Lieb. I'm Jason Horton. And And this this is Ghost Town. Town. And you can find Ghost Town wherever you listen to podcasts. Comets have caused quite a few doomsday predictions, religious and otherwise. Comets were supposed to crash into or otherwise mess up the Earth in 1719, 1736, 1986, and 2011, and were supposed to bring about the apocalypse in 1974. When Halley's Comet was coming around in 1910, some believed it was an omen of an imminent invasion of Britain by Germany. So close. And it was blamed for flooding of the Seine in Paris. Thankfully, scientists were more rational. Just kidding. Astronomer Camille Flammarion nearly caused a mass panic with his theory that the tail of Halley's Comet was made of cyanogen, which it is, that Earth was going to pass through the tail of the comet, which it did, and that would snuff out all life on Earth, which it didn't. Though it was a good financial quarter for those who owned factories that made gas masks. The most famous comet-related prophecy, at least for my generation, was the Hale-Bopp Comet and the Heaven's Gate Cult. The situation would come to a 24-hour news cycle-dominating head in 1997, but the story actually begins in the early 1970s, as so many bad ideas did. That was when the group's founders, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles, met. Perhaps in a drama class? perhaps in a psychiatric institution where Applewhite was a patient. It depends on whose version you're reading. Either way, the two were immediately taken with each other and renamed themselves Bo and Peep, for reasons, I'm sure, and set out on a six-month-long road trip across the United States. Around 1974, they assembled a group they called The Crew, which bounced around Southern California for the next two decades. In September of 75, Bo, Peep, and the crew visited the small town of Waldport, Oregon, to give a lecture about how UFOs were going to make contact with the human race. At first, the town thought it was a joke, but soon 20 people had packed up and left with the crew. That doesn't sound like very many, but it was about 1 in 30 residents of that small town. 
The cult's philosophy could be summed up as UFOs grafted onto Applewhite's Presbyterian upbringing. God is an alien, and Applewhite was the second coming. Aside from abandoning their friends and family and giving the group all of their money, which is Cult 101, members had to cleanse their bodies of impure things. For this, they used the Master Cleanse, invented in the 1940s by Stanley Burroughs. One member who left the group told Newsweek they drank nothing but a mixture of lemon juice, cayenne pepper, and maple syrup for three months. I could have told you juice cleanses were nuts. Sexual thoughts were also right out. Between that and the next level, where they were going being a genderless plane of existence, male members, Applewhite included, were castrated. They referred to their bodies as containers, and members were originally told they would exit their containers when the aliens beamed them up, and later that their bodies would get beamed up too. After Nettles died of cancer, Applewhite amended his teachings to say that they would be given a new body in the next level, so they would have to leave their current one. The aliens would be flying in the tail of the Hale-Bopp comet, which would be closest to the Earth in late March 1997. The 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult, including Applewhite, wearing black tracksuits and matching sneakers, ate applesauce laced with barbiturates and washed it down with vodka. They then put plastic bags over their heads, purple shrouds over their bodies, and laid down to leave their earthly containers behind. They didn't all go at once, but rather staggered it over a few days so they could take turns helping one another. As they saw it, they weren't killing themselves, just getting rid of their pesky bodies so they could join the aliens on the next level. There was one detail about this horrific incident that I didn't know until researching this week that I think will bring the mood back up a little bit. Applewhite and Nettles were huge sci-fi nerds. Star Wars, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek, you name it. That resulted in theories like the Virgin Mary had been taken aboard a spaceship and impregnated by aliens, and that's where Jesus came from. The cult members died wearing patches that said Heaven's Gate Away Team, a reference to the group of important characters and one disposable red shirt that beamed down to alien planets on Star Trek. Bonus fact, Heaven's Gate was also the name of the movie that bankrupted United Artists Studios when the director's insistence on period accuracy tripled the budget and bogged down production. By the sixth day of filming, they were already five days behind schedule. Heaven's Gate wasn't a modern outlier. Apart from the whole 2012 faff with the Mayan calendar, there have been a number of supposed dates for the end of the world or the rapture or what have you. Multiple predictions were made by Harold Camping, CEO and host of the Christian Family Radio Network. Programming began as standard hymns and Bible readings. Then things started to get weird. Camping's first prediction was that the rapture would occur on September 4th or 6th of 1994. Left himself a little wiggle room there, as well as in the title of his book, 1994 question mark? 1994 came and went, but that didn't seem to damage Camping's credibility with family radio listeners. He went back to his math, which we'll get into shortly because it's bonkers, 
and decided the date had to be May 21, 2011. According to Family Radio's website, the Bible guarantees it. First will come a massive earthquake, powerful enough to throw open all graves. Then will follow a slow dying off of all non-believers until the end of the world. This was supposed to begin at Christmas Island in the South Pacific at 6 p.m. local time, going around the world with earthquakes and tsunamis, hitting each time zone at 6 p.m. Family Radio and Camping's followers funded a huge publicity campaign to warn people. Park bench ads around the country, over 3,000 billboards around the world, and a 5RV caravan to tour America and Canada handing out pamphlets to non-believers. One ardent believer gave up the better part of his retirement savings, almost $150,000 to help the campaign. What would money matter after he was raptured anyway? People quit their jobs, took their kids out of school, ran up huge credit card bills, and did other unadvisable things that sound like fun when you think there are no consequences. Even true believers had to reevaluate things when, on May 22nd, the world was still here. There are plenty of videos on YouTube of that very moment when the apocalypse fails to start. You kind of have to feel bad for the fellow that spent his life savings. I didn't water my plants, I didn't do the dishes before I left. I didn't expect to be going back home. But it looks like I will be going back home. You water your plants and do your dishes? Yes. Camping backpedaled and claimed that he meant final judgment was going to be on the 21st of May, but the actual apocalypse wasn't going to be until October 21st. By that point, the believers had stopped believing, and the media didn't find it sporting to make fun of him anymore. Camping said he was flabbergasted that his predictions had been wrong. How could his math have been so far off? Here is the math he used. Not a word of a lie. People who got higher than a D in algebra both times, like me, might want to double-check his figures. He started with April 1st, 33 CE, as the date of the crucifixion. Seems arbitrary, but what do I know? He then took the numbers 17, representing heaven, 10 for completeness, and 5 for atonement, because one Bible verse mentions half a shekel, or 0.5 shekel. Multiply them together, square the result, and you get... 722,500. That's the number of days between the crucifixion and the second coming. His math did account for leap years, but I don't know if camping or anyone else who calculated the end of days included things like the shift to the Julian calendar when the Roman Empire just negated 11 days, skipped right over them. Another thing that all the biblical mathletes seem to have missed is a verse in the book of Matthew that specifically says no man can know when the end is coming. So it's actually heretical to claim that you do. The math of basic economics caught up with camping and family radio. They had spent huge sums of money, both corporate and donated, on the awareness campaign. After the hat trick of failures, plus another 10 predictions I didn't even get into, donations all but stopped and the network was drowning in debt. The world finally ended for Harold Camping on December 15, 2013, when he died after a fall at age 92. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But going back to Joanna Southcott, she wasn't a con artist as far as we can tell, 
She believed in what she was saying, as did her followers. Southcott died two months after the Messiah's projected due date, having demonstrably never been pregnant. Her followers initially refused to bury her, believing she would rise from the dead. When it became clearly obvious from even a cursory visual or olfactory inspection that she was not coming back, the group agreed to bury her. Southcott left behind a locked box full of predictions, which she said could only be opened in a time of national crisis in the presence of all 24 Anglican bishops. The box was supposedly opened by a psychic researcher and was found to contain unimportant papers, a lottery ticket, and a pistol. Remember, you can always find the script for the show and all of the research sources at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.